Well, as you've heard, this is the second Sunday in the Advent season. Uh, We continue in the season of anticipation, of looking forward. Advent is a word we don't use all that often, but you probably know what it means. I mean, it means the beginning or the arrival of something, the start of something. And so it's, it's the season of the year in the church calendar when we look back at the start of the Jesus story. And so we, we look back at its beginning and we remember the anticipation that pre, preceded his arrival, but it also reminds us that we are anticipating his arrival as well. So at least some people were eagerly anticipating his arrival the first time. They were thrilled with hope, you might say, looking for God to break into human history and set everything right. That was really what they were looking for in, the, in his first coming. And aren't we looking for that ourselves? Aren't we looking for Jesus to return, to come to us and set everything right? And so we, we remember, we know something of that anticipation ourselves as we pray on a regular basis, come Lord Jesus, come and rescue us, come and set everything right in the world. So this morning we turn our attention to expectations, thinking about what were people expecting when he came the first time. And what are we expecting now as we look forward to his coming again? If you know the, the, the Jesus story, you know that people's expectations were a big deal throughout the whole story. They shaped people's interactions with him. And I think that continues to be true for us today. So I, I think a question for us to keep asking and thinking about as, as we reflect on the scripture text together is what are you expecting? What are you expecting from Jesus now and in his coming in his second coming. Well, our weekly scripture focus for the Sundays of Advent in this season are being drawn from the the Good Dirt book, uh, which we're giving out to every family. There you can see an image of the cover of the book. This is a book that we've given out or are giving out to every family in the congregation as children 18 and under. The goal is to uh, help help parents lead their children in worship at home in simple, age-appropriate ways. And so if you haven't yet received, if, if you have children at home, you haven't yet received your copy, let Janelle Metter know or contact the church office, let me know. We'll be happy to get you a copy. It's called Good Dirt because it's uh, using the image of our hearts, as, like uh, thinking of our hearts like a garden, like good soil, that we want our hearts, our souls to be good soil for the word of God. And so the book is called Good Dirt, using the analogy of gardening, because if you're a gardener, well, you don't have to be a gardener to know this, that a a garden is healthier, the plants in the garden are healthier if you tend to it in small ways every day, rather than once every month or so trying to catch up and do a month's worth of gardening in one day or in in two months. You know, that's just not going to produce as healthy an outcome as you might otherwise. And the same thing is true for us spiritually that we're growing more, uh, more effectively, we're healthier in our walk with God if we tend to our souls and tend to our journey with Christ in a small way every day or on a very regular basis rather than every month or so trying to catch up and do a month or, two, month or two's worth of, of soul tending in one day or in one moment. So for example, for today, well, so there are four activities uh, for each day of the year that uh, the Good Dirt provides um, a, Activities, simple, four simple activities that parents can do with their children. And the first one is till, to till or to prepare. When you, when you till soil, you prepare it. And so too, we prepare our hearts to receive the word of God. The second is to plant. You plant the seed in a garden, and so too, we plant the word of God in our hearts or in the good dirt, in the good soil of our hearts that we have tilled or prepared. 
The third activity is to water or to nourish. We want to give the seed what it needs to grow. And the fourth activity is to uh, to weed, to remove anything that gets in the way that's going to take away from the life of that plant that that we want to produce vegetables, that we want to see results from. So for today, the the till prayer is is just a simple prayer. Each day, it's just a simple two or three sentence prayer that prepares our hearts to receive the word of God. So for today, that prayer in the Good Dirt book is, God, you are a good king. In your kingdom, there is room for loud rejoicing and room for quiet waiting. In your kingdom, everyone has an important role to play, an important part to play. In your kingdom, we are safe. Let your kingdom come. So that's the prepare, the, the prepare prayer, the till prayer, tilling of our hearts. We've already planted God's word in our heart. Jason just read for us from Luke 7, the passage of uh, the story of God's word for this morning where we heard uh, Jesus say that John urged serious repentance. I came and added celebration. But the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the time had problems with both John and with Jesus. So today, together, we're going to water that word by, by hearing a sermon reflecting on that text. In the book, there's a question of reflection that invites you to reflect on this text. It said, the question is, what is one thing you can change about your expectations today? What is one thing you can change about your expectations today? Or remembering that Jesus came bringing rejoicing and celebration, what is one way that you can rejoice or celebrate today? You can join Jesus in the celebration that he brings. And then the weeding activity for today is at the end of the day to to, to look back and to reflect on how things did or didn't go according to plan or the way that you expected them to go today. So the, the reflection question for today is what did you change? What did you change about your attitude today or about your expectations today, excuse me? Or where did you rejoice today? So it's a, a chance to look back and reflect on the tilling, the planting and the watering that we have done earlier in the day. So today the invitation is to think about what you are expecting in the Advent story, coming from the Advent story, realizing that expectations drive our emotions, expectations shape our reactions to most of the things that happen to us. One time I was really thirsty and uh, I noticed that Max likes lemonade, I like lemonade too. I found some lemonade in the refrigerator, I took a big swallow of lemonade but then I spit it out because it was terrible lemonade. I went to the sink and just spit it all out because it was just terrible. And I thought, that is so weird. What, how, could that, how could lemonade be so awful? And I went back and tasted a little bit more and realized it was just water. It was water. And I, I'm happy to drink water. I know it's good for me. But I spit it out because I expected it to be lemonade. And it tasted so different that I spit it out. My expectations led me to reject something that I enjoy. I actually rejected something that was good for me because I expected something else. And I wondered, as I was preparing these notes, I thought, has that happened to you? Have you ever rejected something that was good for you because it wasn't what you were expecting it to be? Because it came in a different form or different packaging or it came from a, a, a person that you weren't expecting to hear it from. We're learning about how important expectations are in the emotionally healthy relationships class. If you've been in that class the last two weeks, you know the the focus of the last two weeks has been on expectations and about how our feelings and our relationships get tangled sometimes 
when we, re- when we realize that we had an expectation we didn't even know we had until it wasn't met. And sometimes we're upset with people because we expected something from them and we never actually talked with them, never even realized ourselves that we expected something from them that they didn't do. And so we're disappointed and we're hurt or upset. This happens sometimes in, in my relationship with Nita because uh, I'm more of a schedule person and Nita's more of a, a, a people person, you might say, and, and about you know, schedule's important, but things kind of flow. And so when I'm, uh, sometimes we'll, we'll talk and we'll say, okay, well, we're going to meet up at five o'clock. We're going we're gonna to be, we're going to get together at five o'clock because we're going to go on to something else. And if it's five o'clock and she's not there, I'm starting to get a little, you know, turn, uh, my, my emotions are starting to get a little heated. I'm thinking, what's going on? And she, she promised me that she would be here at five o'clock and she shows up at 5.15. And I realized later, we did talk about that, but Actually, we got to our next appointment just fine. I was just trying to leave. I just leave more margin and time than she does. We got to where we needed to go. But because, and, and really, it works out just fine. But my expectations are shaped by those things, and so my emotions get, uh, get connected to that. And I'm sure <clears throat> you know what I mean from your own experience. Or, or maybe it's your financial situation. Are you, are you restless or unsatisfied about your financial situation? If you answer yes to that question, I can almost promise you that you are comparing your financial situation to someone else's who's a little wealthier, a little more comfortable than yours. And it's your expectations that leave you being, uh, feeling restless or unsatisfied. Because almost everyone listening to this sermon, whether you're here in the room or online, almost everyone hearing what I'm ta- saying this morning is fabulously wealthy compared to truly poor people. And we don't, we don't hold on to that because we're looking uh, at people who are more comfortable than we are. I thought about this recently. Uh, we've been having people over for dinner more often this fall, and I realized that our dining room fills up pretty quickly. And sometimes I get a little frustrated because I think, well, it'd be nice to have a larger group and more room to spread out. And I think, you know, I, I, I've been in houses that have bigger rooms than this. Our house really isn't quite, you know, what it could be. But then I realized that I have a house. I, I live in a house that I own. I can afford to repair it. It's, it's clean, it's dry, and it serves us really well. It's, in fact, it's cool in the summertime and it's warm in the wintertime. And I forget that up until just, uh, you know, maybe 100, 150 years ago, it was only kings and queens that lived with that level of comfort. And I realized that it's my expectations. It's where I'm looking, where I'm making my comparisons that are shaping my emotions. So what am I expecting as I think about these things? What are you expecting? Whether it's from your life or from God, what are you expecting? And where do those expectations come from? The way you answer that question will directly impact the level of contentment and peace you live with in your life. And it also shapes the way that we respond to the troubles that we run into in our lives. Our expectations for how our lives should work Shapes, our, uh, shapes the way we respond to them. I was reminded this week that research tells us that how a person views God before experiencing suffering plays a, a big role in determining how they'll react afterwards. There's a psychologist at Wheaton College named Jamie Ayton who's done some research on this. And he says that, for, say for example, that two Christians who have the same job and who attend the same church every week both lose their homes in a natural disaster. Let's say both of their houses just burn to the ground. But the Christian with a more loving view of God is likely to come away from that feeling that God protected him 
and spared his life and will find things to be thankful for even though his house is just burned to the ground. Whereas the person with a more uh, negative or wrath, angry view of God might feel that God is punishing him and think, I didn't deserve that. Why did God do that to me? Your view of God shapes your expectations and your response to these things. Aiton goes on to say, most of us operate from what researchers call, most researchers call a just world theory, which is the idea that I'm a good person. I'm basically a good person, so good things should happen to me. But then when bad things happen, it can really rock the way we understand the world and even the way we view God. Peter Scazzaro, who's the instructor for the Emotionally Healthy Relationships class, uh, said last week in his teaching, he said, if you're angry with God because he hasn't met your expectations, it may be because you have expectations of God that God never agreed to. Let me read that again. If you are angry with God because he hasn't met your expectations, it may be because you have expectations of God that God never agreed to. Well, expectations are clearly the problem in the text this morning from Luke 7, the text that we heard read, where Jesus is interacting with a group of people, some of whom have accepted him, others of, who, others of whom have rejected him. He says in verse 28, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. He's talking about John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When they heard this, all the people, even the tax collectors, the tax collectors are, were the, the lowest of the low, so that's why they get special mention pretty often in the New Testament. When they heard this, all the people, even the tax collectors, agreed that God's way was right, for they had been baptized by John. That's the group that accepted the word of God through John and also now through Jesus. But the Pharisees and experts in religious law rejected God's plan for them because they refused, they had refused John's baptism. So God's plan was to send Jesus, but to send John ahead of him as his messenger, announcing that Jesus was coming, that he was on his way. So he, it was God's plan to send two different messengers, two different messengers with very different styles. So on this day that Jesus is teaching, we have these, these two groups of people who heard the same message from the same person on the same day but their expectations led them, to, led them to respond in two completely different ways, in two opposite ways. One of them accepted what he had to say, the other rejected it. And so he tells this parable that Jason read for us, which I'm gonna paraphrase by just saying that Jesus, in speaking to the people primarily who rejected him, he says, in paraphrase, he said, you think John is too fanatical. You think he's too fanatical, and so you've dismissed him but you think I'm not fanatical enough, and so you're dismissing me. You think I'm too relaxed about your rules, but we've both been sent by God. We've both been sent by God, but you're rejecting both of us because neither of us met your expectations. Neither of us are meeting your expectations. We don't fit into the boxes that you had in place and in mind. Now, to be fair, I think as we read this, we have to realize that um, John, Jesus didn't meet John the Baptist's expectations either. That's a really interesting twist in this story. John didn't reject Jesus, but he was clearly puzzled by what Jesus was not doing. He's looking at Jesus' ministry, and he's, and he's puzzled. So in, in Luke 7, 18 and 19, it says, that his disciples came and told him about what Jesus was doing, and... Um, John called two of his disciples to himself and sent them back to Jesus to say, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? 
Are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? The New American Standard there, I like the phrase that says, are you the expected one? Are you the expected one or should we keep looking for someone else? In his sermon on this passage, Pastor Lee Strobel says, think about that. Think about that. This, this person, John the Baptist, is the one who once pointed to Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was his herald, his announcer, his, the one who announced his coming. He's the one who baptized Jesus, who saw the heavens open up and heard God proclaim over Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John was there when that happened. He also once said, I've seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. John was clearly thrilled with hope full of hope and high expectations. But then Jesus didn't meet his expectations. Jesus wasn't quite who he expected, and now John's not really so sure. And so he sends a a disciple, a messenger to Jesus to say, are you the one we've been expecting, or should we keep expecting someone else? But it's very interesting here that Jesus isn't bothered by John's doubts, by that question. Jesus isn't upset. He doesn't denounce John He's not angry with him, but quite the opposite. He points to John. Um, he points John to the prophecies that he, Jesus, is fulfilling in his ministry and then pays him the highest possible compliment. And we have that in verse 28. He says to the crowd, he says, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John, John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. So he's complimenting John, but he's also slips in some teaching there, some insight. And if you're wondering how those two ideas fit together, it may help you to know that most commentators remind us that John was actually the last prophet of the old covenant, that John was still teaching and preaching under the the, the framework of the old covenant. Jesus had not yet died nor been raised from the dead, so the new covenant had not yet fully come. John was still in the old covenant and teaching in that setting. And so he's the last prophet in that old covenant. And he, he was killed, if you know his story as it unfolds, he was killed before Jesus died. And so he never had the opportunity to enter into the new covenant with his other followers. So it's in that sense that Jesus says these things, that the least person in the new covenant is not greater than John in terms of their devotion to God, nor in their service in terms of what they can do for God. Because John would have outdone any of us in terms of devotion and what he could do for God. He, was, he had really kind of laid down his whole life for that. No, those of us in the new covenant are greater than him in terms of our privilege, in terms of our privilege, in terms of seeing the fulfillment of the old covenant, in terms of seeing the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies, in terms of enjoying the freedom and the privileges of being the children of God. So we're not greater than John in terms of what we can do for God, but we are greater from, uh, than John in terms of what God has done for us what God will do for us. And so paraphrasing Jesus here, he says, anyone who has submitted their life to me through the forgiveness I'm offering is greater than John because their sins are forgiven and because they can have a personal relationship with God as the sons and, the daughter, and, sons and daughters of God. So Jesus didn't exactly meet John's expectations, but he really didn't meet the expectations of the Pharisees and the experts in religious law. And so he gives here in Luke 7 what some commentators call the parable of the brats in verses 31 to 35. Not the parable of the brats, parable of the brats, bratty kids. And Jesus says, some of, some of you are like bratty little children who are never satisfied. Children who, um, 
insist that you play by their rules, but they keep changing the rules. They keep adding new rules, and so they're never satisfied, and eventually they give up on you and take their ball, and they just go home. The parable of the brats. And he says when, when God sent John the Baptist, John, you rejected him. He lived in the desert. He lived on grasshoppers and wild honey. He had wild hair and bad clothes. He was too fanatical for you. He preached a serious message of confession and repentance. And it's like he came playing funeral songs. And the appropriate response to John's message would have been weeping and mourning in repentance and sackcloth, a a visual reminder of repentance and sorrow. But many of you rejected him and you, in fact, you went so far as to say he was demon-possessed. He was just off the deep end in the wrong direction. But then when I came along, you rejected me too. I go to parties, I enjoy good food, I drink wine, I laugh, I dance, but I'm not fanatical enough for you. Jesus is saying, I preach the kingdom of God and I'm calling people to live a a life, a fulfilled life of joy and freedom. It's like I came playing wedding songs to celebrate the arrival of God's glorious kingdom. You should join me in celebration. But many of you have rejected me too. And you accuse me of eating and drinking too much, of being the friend of tax collectors and sinners the people you're working so hard to stay away from, to keep your distance from, the people who kind of scare you because you don't want to be like them. And Jesus is saying to his listeners, and I think to us too, possibly, your expectations are leading you in the wrong direction. You're missing what God is doing because you refuse to rethink your expectations. You're missing what God is doing in your time because you refuse to rethink your expectations. And I think this morning is an opportunity for us to, to ask ourselves whether or not we may be doing that as well. Is there any way in which you are missing, you might be missing what God is doing or what God is saying because you refuse to rethink your expectations or because God is not meeting your expectations and you're saying, I'm giving up on God, I'm frustrated with God, I'm disappointed with God. You may be missing out on what God is saying or what God is doing because he's not meeting your expectations. I mean, maybe your life is harder than you expected it to be, harder than you wanted it to be. Have you been expecting that God would keep your life completely free from suffering or sacrifice, from rejection or pain or heartache of any sort? He does do that sometimes, and I'm guessing that he probably shields us from more of that than we are aware of, than we realize and he does promise that one day he will completely remove those things from our lives. And that's one of, the, one of the hopes that we have, one of the expectations we have in the future, that he will remove all of those things, all pain, all suffering from our lives. But many times in this life, many times in this life, his purpose is to give us the strength to endure those things, to trust in him, to enable us to hang in there and face them so that we can grow in character so that we can grow in patience, we can grow in hope, we can hold on to hope when it's tested. We can grow in trust as he gives us the strength to see things through. So another way to ask the question I've been asking is, are your expectations turning you toward God or are your expectations turning you away from God? You may remember that Jesus' life was sometimes harder than he wanted it to be too. 
He endured more than his share of suffering and sacrifice and rejection and pain, but we know that God clearly was not punishing him. The sinless one, there's nothing he did to deserve punishment. I think God sometimes does use hardship to get our attention, to wake us up and say, pay attention, what's, what's happening in your life? But hardship in itself does not necessarily mean that God is punishing you any more than it meant that he was punishing Jesus. But listen to what Peter says about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now our phrase for this morning, we live with great expectation. We live, so it's not having expectations that's the problem. It's what those expectations are. We live with great expectation, Peter says, and we have a priceless inheritance. Our expectation is that we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that we expect is kept in heaven for us, pure and undefiled. We expect that it's kept there beyond the reach of change and decay. And that through your faith, he says, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So proper expectations for us as followers of Jesus is that we have an inheritance that he's keeping in heaven for us that nobody can touch, nobody can destroy, nobody can change. And that our expectation is that God is protecting us. God is caring for us in every way possible until we receive that salvation. And we expect that it will be revealed on that last day. So he says, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, not because your life is comfortable and prosperous, carefree. No, he says, be glad, be truly glad, because there's wonderful joy ahead, even though you've had to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as a fire tests and purifies gold, though your salvation is far more precious than mere gold. (laughs) So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So our great expectation, the one that we live with, is that God is saving us, that he is now saving us. He is keeping our salvation for us and will fulfill that salvation completely on the day that Jesus is revealed. Our expectation, the hope that thrills us is not that our lives will be comfortable and carefree. It's that we have that priceless inheritance that's being kept for us that cannot be soiled or diminished in any way. That God is protecting us even while we walk through hard times. That we have that wonderful joy to look forward to all because of the mercy of God and because the power of the power of God that raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. So this morning, I want to urge you not to take on false expectations that being a child of God means that everything will go your way in this life. Yes, the power and the presence and the grace of God are fully present to each of us, no matter what we walk through. But Jesus is far more than just my personal assistant or my my personal handyman who fixes stuff and makes sure that nothing bad ever happens to me. Jesus is our Lord. We are citizens of his kingdom He's the center and the focus of our lives. We serve him and his purposes gratefully, eagerly, joyfully, even when that leads us through seasons of suffering or sacrifice or pain. We don't look for those things, but we do expect them because we know the times in which we live and we accept them.
So I come back to the story or the question that is the, the water question in, in the Good Dirt book. What's one thing you may need to change about your expectations today? What, is there something that has come to mind as, I've, if you, as you've heard me speaking this morning or as you've heard the scriptures read where God is saying, here is an expectation that needs to shift in your life or in your heart? Or maybe for you, it's what, the other question would be, what is one thing you can rejoice in today? What's one way you can stand with Jesus in rejoicing or celebrating in this kingdom that Jesus has brought? Let me invite him to water this word in our heart and bring it to full, full life. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word.